Welcome to the Sandbox Cooperative Podcast. I'm Chris. I'm Carrie. And I'm Dave. Thanks for joining us. Wait, Dave, welcome back. What up, homies? <laughs> you, so you've been gone for the last several months. It's good to have you back in the studio. We were just thinking it's been probably since April since oh my three of us all sat here and did this. Yeah. The last time I was here, people were shorter and lived closer to the water. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's just been forever, man. I, I don't even think I know how to do this. <laughs> Show me I'm, the ropes, I'm man. Not sure. I'm, not <laughs> I'm not sure we do either. We'll exactly. see. We'll see. Um, but yeah, it's great to have you back. We're, yeah. uh, we're going to hear a little bit more about uh, your travels and all the things that you learned in the coming weeks. And we're... Super excited for that. Uh, yeah. But turns out there's still a podcast to happen. How about it? You know, I mean, it's it was actually kind of surreal as I was doing a lot of my traveling and listening to your liquidy smooth voices as I, <laughs> as, I uh, as I went about and, and heard the different interviews and, and things that uh, that were coming out of the sandbox. So it was it was really kind of cool being on the other side of it. But cool. it's it's also just great to be back. Yeah. So. Yeah. So we're excited to have you back, Dave, and we'll be hearing a lot more about you and your travels in a future episode. But for today, we actually have an interview that Chris and Dave did with Stephen Bowman. He's the director for domestic mission in the Evangelical Lutheran. Church in America, and it took place at the National Youth Gathering, which was over a year ago. Yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> it's been a while. Yeah. yeah, but I'm just wondering, what do you remember from this interview? Well, it, honestly, it was good to listen to it again because I forgot how great of a conversation we had. But mm-hmm. um, I just I was struck by uh, and this is something you'll hear a lot. Um, just the intent uh, that when we say we believe something to kind of put that into practice, how mm-hmm. much that can change uh, communities and, and relationships and people's experience. So I just, I love that, that component of his story and what he shared with us. Yeah. You know, I've been tracking with his work for, for some years now, and I, I've always been impressed with him, but to actually be able to sit down with him, he made time just, we had an interview drop out on us and, and he kind of came out of nowhere. He was going to be addressing the next day he addressed 35,000 high school students <laughs> and just the generosity of time and spirit to be able yeah. to sit down with us and uh, just a genuine human being. And uh, just the things that he says, uh, just they stick, they've stuck with me over the years in, in this interview in particular. So I'm, I'm really excited about it. Awesome. Well, with that, let's get to today's conversation with Stephen. Welcome to Sandbox episode 89, Courage for Community. Welcome to the Sandbox. I'm Stephen Bowman. I'm uh, director for domestic mission in the ELCA. Uh, our unit's work includes this youth gathering here. Um, 20 years of parish pastor, first 10 in Queens. We ended up having uh, liturgy in Spanish and Korean and English, and uh, we're part of a church-based community organization. We built thousands of units at Nehemiah Housing, uh, doing community organizing. Um, I was a bishop for 12 years in New York City uh, and was a bishop during 911. Then uh, uh, came to Chicago to direct the uh, domestic ministries of the ELCA. And that's a big span. So it's mm-hmm. everything from colleges and universities to disaster response to starting new congregations to advocacy, immigration, uh, seminaries, uh, youth and young adults. Mm-hmm. So if it's in America, it's probably in our unit. Uh, <laughs> Bishop Eaton calls it the Department of America. <laughs> so obviously there's a lot that you're overseeing and working with, but what are some of the main projects right now, or what are some of the things that that get you excited to be doing this role? When I was a parish pastor, we had one 
um, mission statement. And we didn't do 90 retreats and 100 editorial. It was, we will be responsible for the poor and the stranger and those without the gospel in our community and with others around the world. And I, that's still my priority. So um, I really believe that, that Jesus wasn't kidding when he said he loves the poor. And that when he said the poor you will always have with you, that wasn't dismissive. It was almost a sacrament that we'll always find Jesus. Uh, there wasn't a day in my years of parish ministry when I wasn't with people materially poor every day. Nothing romantic about it, but also just incredible. Uh, they were my teachers in, in terms of faith, resilience. And we were a church for immigrants. Uh, so this, this wasn't a cause. This was, uh, this was really about new neighbors. So our, my congregations weren't classically Lutheran. We were neighborhood churches mm-hmm. where, where everyone was welcome. And we were so enriched by, by the leadership of, of, of uh, immigrants, p- people in poverty. There were blue-collar churches. So the kind of divide today that, you know, we had red and blue state people back then, uh, and we were a church. And um, so those values persist. I'm getting around to answering your question. Um, so you may have heard of a ministry called Amparo, which is, means refuge mm-hmm. in, in Spanish, and it, uh, it's about Central American kids. Well, really the galvanizing piece was uh, my going from the ninth floor to the 10th floor, domestic missions on the ninth floor, Global Ministries on the 10th floor, and asking Raphael, my counterpart in Global Mission, we've got to get our you-know-whats down to the border and start listening. Because uh, twice as many year after year, and we didn't see much happening. And so in organizing terms, it's kind of running an action. So we went down, down here, down to Corpus Christi and down to McAllen, and we just listened to kids. Mm-hmm. And we listened to those who were taking care of them. I'm, I'm a street guy, so I've got to get my heart... In, I got to see it. I got to touch it, feel it, taste it, and then out of that we built a movement, uh, which which then included Central America. And so we were down in San Pedro Sula and San Salvador, listening to why families were divesting themselves. Mm-hmm. We had a group listening in Mexico to what happens to the kids and the moms on the journey here. When we, when our money tightened the border. Almost every kid is commodified down there. Uh, narco gangs, MS gangs, uh, traffickers. So we were able to get the whole picture and get many pieces of the ecology of the ELCA involved with one laser-like focus. And it started by pivoting towards disaster. When President Obama said, this is a, this is a catastrophe, he was right. And so uh, the other man-made disaster that, that I was involved with was uh, 911, and we formed Lutheran Disaster Response New York. So disaster, then global mission has their piece, domestic mission has their piece, then mission advancement is getting the stories out there, and so we saw we could break down silos. So that, that's, a, that's a big piece, and I think it's bigger now more than ever. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lutheran Immigration and Refugee Services, Ecumenical Friends. So that's a huge one. We're also really focused in on congregational vitality right now. 
which is different than sustainability, because I think in the way of Jesus, small can be beautiful. Mm-hmm. If mm-hmm. it's making a difference in the lives of people, if it really shows up in their neighborhood. Uh, and so vi- that, that's a vital church. There are a lot of big churches that aren't vital. Yeah. And, but I think we have a lot to learn from bigger churches that are vital. So we're, we're kind of in an adaptive time, and we are, we are using our resources to come alongside of places where there's promising things like this. So those are a couple of things uh, that we're working on. A couple of things. And, and, and again, you say a couple of things, and again, it seems bigger than I can imagine, especially as you talk about what's happening at the border right now. Um, uh, we are, if, if it was a disaster, you know, you know, when President Obama said it was, a, you know, mm-hmm. a disaster, it's, it's even amplified right now. Um, in what ways are, uh, in what ways are you able to, you know, what are the stories? What are, what, what's happening on the ground there? We found out a few years ago that one in 10 of the kids crossing the border were being served by uh, LSS of the South, now called Upring, uh, Lutheran Social Services. Mm-hmm. So we invested in them so they could And because they had wraparound services that others didn't have. Um, Trauma counseling for the kids, education, real care about trying to to reunite them with loved ones um, that you don't get if you're housed in an armory. And so we we invested there so we could increase their capacity to do that. The kids we talked to, I mean, it's heartbreaking. Yeah, you know, I saw kids five years old who came by themselves. Uh, Wow. I asked three questions in Corpus Christi. Uh, in my Spanglish. One was, why'd you leave? And almost every one of them, violencia. Second one was, uh, what was the passage like? And almost every one of them had stories to tell. There were many, many kids who were sexually abused, who were robbed. La Bestia is a train that they called the beast. Kids would be pushed off the roof and, and, and so on. And so I said, and then my other question is, how is it here? And they said, they like it. And I said, why? Securidad. We're safe. And the stories we got in, in uh, uh, San Pedro Sula and San Salvador, just really violent, scary places that, that where people are deported. We watched them get off the buses, and you could just see kind of the people noticing and people they ran away from. Mm. Now they're back. Now what? So, so those are, you know, story after story after story mm. that, that breaks your heart. And, I mean, specific stories, uh, I've written a few of them up in... Uh, a book I recently put out called Baptized for This Moment that that traces how Amparo started as a movement. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you compared uh, the disaster of, of that to 9-11. Could you compare those two? The comparison, it, it, it's more like a little bit of a birth story for the way we treat immigrants today. Okay. It, you know, after 9-11, we, we, we blamed, you know, at this point, you know, all Muslims, um, we stopped resettling refugees. Therefore, the whole, I was on the board of Lutheran Immigration and Refugee Services. Our capacity for all of our networks that were resettling these people, all that capacity dried up. It's also analogous in that it's not a hurricane. It's violence perpetrated by, by people. Mm. The same kind of thing happening in South Sudan. And that's the other thing we're working on. Remember the Lost Boys of Sudan? Mm. In Rochester, a lot of yeah. them. Steve Delzer's congregation yeah. was, was one. So they learned to love the L word because of the Lutheran World Federation camps 
in, you know, in Ethiopia mm-hmm. and, and Uganda. And then Lutheran Immigration and Refugee Services helped resettle them here. So what they knew about Lutheran was good. Some of them are now ELCA mission developers. Mm-hmm. And they want to start a Lutheran church back in their own country. Their new country that is now being just torn apart. It's been called the most challenged place in the world. Civil war. Mm-hmm. And so our ELC mission developers, we have, we have about 25 South Sudanese congregations here in the United States in the ELCA. I saw some of their kids playing soccer in the, in the <laughs> gathering here. Um, but they're Dinka and Newer, and those are the two warring tribes. So as we are developing a church and building a hospital in Juba, South Sudan, a lot of expatriates are fueling the war. So we gathered 44 Sudanese leaders, ELCA leaders, pastors and lay leaders, and we, we had a peace summit, mm. 24 hours, and came out with uh, a statement that they gave to the new church in Juba, and to their expats here, and that's now ecumenical, and that is that we are not we we are a peace church in Juba. We are not going to fuel that war. And in those 24 hours, to hear people look at each other and say, "I got to stop saying that you killed my mother." Um, so a lot of stuff's going on that mm-hmm. that that, and so I feel really blessed because as a, I guess as a church bureaucrat, I get to use some of the street instincts and uh, you know it, it translates you know working with local gangs in New York City and New Jersey and uh, peace is a long game um, and but church our churches can be the places what 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 strikes me is that I think the best evangelism tool we could be would be that our churches could be places where red and blue people red and blue state people can actually be quiet get out of their echo chambers listen to each other yeah. mm-hmm but we don't have a mechanism for that conversation, or we haven't modeled it very well. Um, we haven't modeled it well. We have a mechanism. Yeah. It's called the church. It's called baptism and Eucharist. It's where everyone goes through the water. Yeah. Everyone, you know, yeah. Jesus said, uh, when Peter said, you know, we've left everything to follow you, our families, he said, here's what you get, new brothers, new sisters. And, and think of those 12. One was a tax collector, so he'd probably be an imperialist. You know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. fishermen were blue-collar workers. I mean, I mean you had some of that mm-hmm. mix there. I think it's about, about courage. Yeah. I learned, you know, it's one thing to talk about immigration in uh, New York and another thing in a church basement in Nebraska. Yeah. <laughs> but when I started, when I told my immigrant story, my uh, grandfather came here from the North Sea, uh, they were farmers. They couldn't afford the dike taxes. They were cannon fodder for the growing wars of imperialist Germany. And so they came here for safety, for their kids, for a new beginning. And the pastor met them at midnight at the train station in Clara City, Minnesota. Hmm. The next Sunday, the next day, after church, they took them to their new farm gave them the seed corn for the first harvest, raised their barn. I have nightmares of my grandparents when I think of how we regard the immigrant today. Mm-hmm. And unless we came by the middle passage of slavery or we were here already, this is our story. This is our church. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I think we need to tell ancestor stories. 
If we go to the mm-hmm. streets around this, it's in memory of our grandparents and the mm-hmm. churches that welcomed them. That's a different conversation. Mm-hmm. And I've found that if you, when you get away from being a policy wonk, when we can all admit we have a broken system, but then when we, there's some clear stuff in the Bible too, you know, it, Aunt Abraham and, and, and Uncle Abraham and Aunt Sarah were economic migrants, mm-hmm. our forebearers in the faith. Jesus was clear about this. Mm-hmm. Um, the Old Testament. So if we talk about what the Bible says and we talk about our own grandparents and tell each other stories, we may back ourselves into maybe not changing anyone's mind, but at least not being so thuggish in the conversation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. As, I'm, as I'm hearing you talk about some of, these, some of these issues, I mean, I think certainly we need to be able to have conversations with people who are, are different from us. And that's a big part of, I think, our cultural work right now. But the other thing that I'm, that I'm hearing and, and thinking about is that working in domestic mission, like in my mind, part of the mission is that we've kind of collectively forgotten what the church is and what the church does. And, and we've definitely, in my opinion, lost some of that uh, prophetic voice and, and ability to move us forward. That being said, how are you seeing leaders taking bold steps? How are you encouraging leaders to take bold steps? And um, what ways can we um, continue to, to encourage that and, and walk with each other in that process? In our mission developer and redeveloper training, we make sure that people hear from the Yehiel Currys, South Side of Chicago, and, and, and some of the leaders who are, who are people of color. Who, who just tell their own stories. We really hit scripture hard. And, and the Bible is not ambiguous about some of these things. Mm-hmm. I did a, a uh, ministerium uh, with Bishop Terry Brandt in eastern North Dakota after some really serious incidents. Unfortunately, that involved uh, some immigrants and people all of a sudden discovered that Lutheran Immigration and Refugee Services was, you know, resettling people, and, and it got ugly. Mm-hmm. And we had a conversation in the ministerium about what happens when we lose our voice. How do we have, you know, heighten, not collapse that tension between the gospel is a big tent. We don't check ideologies with a, at the turnstile, but at the other hand, that we do have a clear, clear message if we want to just go home with the comfort of our convictions, we can spout all we want, and it doesn't matter. In relationship is the only way that we're ever going to actually change. And so I re- we, we emphasize a communal rather than an issue-driven uh, ecclesiology. Mm-hmm. That if it's issue-driven, we'll find ourselves at the defended space. If it's communal, we'll always yeah. be at the next Eucharist, the next... I mean, that's how we had the sexuality conversation in New York. You know, very polarized... Listening to the stories of people, talk to immigrants. The power of any congregation, you have the power to visit and to go as a guest anywhere you want. And you have the power to convene. There are very few institutions left that take advantage of that. Mm-hmm. And so you have, we, we, we have the power to, you know, rather than go on a mission trip, you know, and, and, and paint another wall somewhere, but you go on a mission trip to the mosque around the corner and find out who they are. And, mm-hmm. and um, so I think in a lot of different ways, we're basically saying, I think the way forward is to do the three great listenings. You listen to God all the time, and that's deep scriptural work. It's prayer. 
it's conversations like this. It's getting in touch with your own testimony. When was my church there for me when I needed it? And, mm-hmm. and then it's listening in the household of faith in an asset-based way. So there are other people doing this work. There are other people vexed about this too. Yeah. And then it's listening in the community. And our congregation always did one-on-ones every year in the community. Just hard listening, not to hustle people or anything, but just to listen. And that included public figures. What is your dream and hope for us? <laughs> How do we engage you in that? Do you want to know what ours is? You know, mm-hmm. and, and, and so it's relationship, relationship, relationship. I don't know what to do about if the gospel hasn't convinced us about some of these things. I know that uh, Saturday night, uh, though the youth are going to hear an aging white leader say that black lives matter and that we are Lutheran and we are pro-immigrant without apology. I think there's a role here for all of us. I, and I also think lay people, I think many of our lay people want to be on the right side of a lot of this stuff. I really believe that. Mm-hmm. I think they need to demand of their, of their pastors and leaders moral courage and then back mm-hmm. them up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think, I, I, I totally agree with you. I, I think one of the things that, certainly we all, we all have disagreements and we all have varying opinions, but I, I think that people in congregations want to take bold steps to make positive change in our culture. And church leaders want to take bold steps to make positive change in our culture. And I think everybody's a little afraid of what might happen. Might we actually dig in and have some of those conversations? And I think we're at a, we're at a unique time culturally for all sorts of reasons, but particularly when it comes to, especially at the, at the local level, individual congregations taking, taking bold stands, we're concerned about paychecks, we're concerned about like, are enough people going to show up that we can even have this building and do this thing together? And all of those kinds of questions that unfortunately have, uh, have sometimes gotten in the way. Um, and, and I think that's not to, to be critical of anything. That's just to say that I think that's where we're at. And I, I wonder how we move through that. I wonder what the, yeah. what the next steps are, what the encouragement is, what the way forward is into being the church that I think we all want to be. Yeah. I think... One of the things I learned, you know, my first years in Queens, I had two babies, another one on the way. I was still getting carded. After a year or two of just being with people, showing up the dark night of their souls, being there when they're in the hospital, preaching the gospel, trust builds up. And I think that we need to have to learn to trust those relationships and, and, and really take advantage of the spiritual capital. Mm-hmm that we have. And so I think it's, it's finally about relationship. The, last night at the gathering, the wonderful speaker talked about proximity. We need, to, we need to, to, to lead people into encounters that can help change their perspective in their lives. So I think some of it is to just be vulnerable. And you know what? This emerging generation is already doing it on college campuses. They're already, you know, my, my one nephew, I talked to my nephews and nieces and kids all the time, but they started a progressive collective that wants to talk to the uh, neocons and, and, you know, and they, I mean, they're, they're, they're trying to figure it out. They want to show up. Uh, if we don't do it, God will find a church that will. Yeah. And I think there's church out there that's happening all the time. Mm-hmm. And that's why I have great hope in what you guys are trying to do. And it might look completely different than anything we've ever seen before. And it will yeah. also feel very familiar. Exactly. 
And, and we have a series of these kind of emergent ministries across mm -hmm. the country. And what banded this particular group of about 17 together is that they use the arts of community organizing. So the, the entrance is that they're wrestling with the soul of their community. But I see them back themselves into liturgy, you know, at the end mm -hmm. of the... At the end of the uh, session they had on evaluation after meeting with the mayor, then they'll tell stories about what they're looking forward to in the week, and then they'll put a candle, you know, in a pail full of sand. The other thing I think that the ELCA needs to hear, I think it needs to hear a little of what you heard before, just before I came in. I spent years in New York, and the Lutheran community there during those years, we started 35 immigrant ministries, and we went from 13 to 35 percent non-white. But that church never showed up across the Hudson. So people kept talking about Lutheran this, Lutheran that, and all the Oli and Lena jokes and all of that stuff. And our people never registered. They're Lutheran. Mm -hmm. uh, like, like Albert Starr and our staff said, who's an African-American born Lutheran, he said, I'm not a guest here. This is, this is my house. So I think we need to also hear from other Lutherans that mm -hmm. don't look like us. Mm -hmm. And remember that... The fastest growing Lutheran churches in the world are Tanzania, Ethiopia, some churches in Asia are growing like wildfire. Yeah, yeah. I also hear you saying that none of us are flat characters. I mean, like in a sitcom, you can predict every one of their moves because they're a flat character, but we all have depth and we all have dimension and we all have things that are going to surprise others and surprise ourselves. So, yes. Uh, yeah, lots, lots of thoughts, yeah. but let me ask you a question. question. Yeah. What would your game changer be for the ELCA? What do you mean? One thing that if you had the power to make it happen would, would change our narrative from one of, a, one of the mm -hmm. slumping mainline denominations to something that, that uh, at least might look interesting. Mm -hmm. It starts with courage. And, and, and I think it's the courage to fail. Mm -hmm. I think we've so backed ourselves into a corner where it has to succeed. We're desperate. We're looking at everything that we're looking at. Uh, and this isn't just about one church denomination. This, mm -hmm. is, this right. is everybody. It's, this is our one last great shot, and we've got to get it right. Whatever that is. Whatever it yeah. is. But the only way that I've ever learned anything is to try and fail and, and, and try to see what, what happens. And that right. also requires a, a license uh, for creativity. Amen. So, so I think if we are able to do that, then I think we're able to take some of the bold steps that you're talking about mm -hmm. uh, in connecting with uh, people who we don't see eye to eye with mm -hmm. and, and build community, build those relationships. It also gives us the courage to uh, try things and maybe have some fun while we're doing it. And oh, so, yeah. if this wasn't fun, I'd be on the golf course. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it's also terrifying. I, you know, I, I can't imagine when you're sharing the story about going into that church, and you said it was brutal, and I can only imagine uh, uh, what it took afterwards to kind of put it back together again. I mean, for you, put yourself back together again. It was more terrifying before than, than after. Okay. Hmm. It was almost cathartic. Mm. Because I, I, felt like, I felt like if I didn't do it, 
that that um, you know they should really get another bishop. Yeah, that's that's what I signed up for. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and it was a sense of relief, but also in the midst of it, I find the Holy Spirit uses these times yeah. when you're with a human being, another human being that's feeling something intensely and passionately. It draws you in. Yeah, yeah. And and so, uh, yeah. To to get there, I sometimes have to go like, <laughs> right, like this. But but but, uh, I think, re- long ago, you know, it's, it wasn't easy being a pastor in New York. So, mm-hmm. the need to be needed or liked, um, quickly went away. And and uh, community organizing taught me though that no one gives you respect; you have to earn it. Mm-hmm. And I wanted respect because right. I wanted to be, I wanted to take seriously the power I had. Hmm. And, and so it was, it was also, I saw it as an opportunity. Mm-hmm. Uh, never waste a crisis. Hmm. Uh, and it is terrifying, but it's more terrifying ultimately not to. Right. Because then there's just entropy. There's just, you know, uh, and I had those years in the parish. I'd look myself in the mirror around uh, September and say, can I crank this puppy up again? And the Holy Spirit works, I, th- I think, and I just learned that it's okay to be vulnerable because other people will f- fill that in. And it's okay to be wrong. Mm-hmm. But I agree with you. We're never going to learn anything if we don't go for it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think right now the church has to be a learning institution, and we have to learn how to learn. Right. Yeah. And and I tell our directors for evangelical mission, I want some of you to bring me colossal failures, mm-hmm. because 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 you're serious and because God wastes nothing. Mm-hmm. We're going to mm-hmm. learn from it, mm-hmm. and that's what we need. We need people talking to each other. We don't need top-down leadership. We need, you know. I think my job is more like a like a rabbi or a theological consultant to the thing and sometimes the community organizer that pushes, pushes, pushes. Mm-hmm. Um, but, and then my job is to say thank you to everybody I can all the time. Uh, mm-hmm. But, but uh, they're learning from each other. Yeah. And, yeah. and, and yeah. we need that research and development arm. But, and, and that's why things like this and other interesting things, that are, they're happening all through the church. Yeah. I, I hope we find a way to talk to each other. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, because you're a wonderful listening post for the church, because yeah. you probably people talk back too, and and you have to know what keeps them listening or not. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. and uh, so, how do we how do we mind that? Right, right, right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think um, as I think about your question, for me, it's. I love being here at the gathering. I think it's a, a great event. I love seeing people that I know that I haven't seen in you know a few years or, or whatever. And and I think all of that's good. But I think um, there's still something that feels like we all come to do together and do our thing. And I and I want it to feel a little more expansive. And I don't I don't have <laughs> I guess I don't have other words than that. Um, but I want it I want it to feel like like it's pointing at something that feels not just not just feels bigger in the higher power sense, but feels bigger than just us or just Lutherans or just, you I'm know with I, you. Oh, absolutely. I am with you totally. The people will take you there. Um, you know, when Jesus sent out the, the, the two by two and then the 70, he, he, he told them not to take any bread because they're going to go to somebody else's kitchen table as guests. 
as seeking hospitality mm-hmm. and and eat their neighbor's bread and become companions. Um, one Easter Sunday in Queens, I baptized 25 Korean people who had been Buddhist. And then there were a couple of families that couldn't come, so they asked me to go with them, and they took the Eucharist. And we met at a, at a shop in the South Bronx that one of them owned and that he had to work that Sunday. Mm-hmm. And so we had the Eucharist there, too. But they went up and down the street, and I said, why don't you invite other people who may, maybe didn't get communion? And so there was church right there. Mm-hmm. And the people took me mm-hmm. there. Um, it felt... It, it, it felt like uh, nothing I've ever felt in my life. Mm-hmm. For a while, the fastest-growing Lutheran church in, in the Metro New York Synod was a storefront near Yankee Stadium. Um, and 90% of the people were in recovery there, uh, or, or relatives of people in mm-hmm. recovery. And I went to, there to preach one Sunday, and, um, and I'd also just gotten a cancer diagnosis. So the place was a hubbub, and there's this one guy standing there, which is really a very interesting, soft-spoken man, and, and so... I asked him the obvious question, because he probably went past 10 culturally relevant places to get to a Lutheran storefront. (laughs) I said, why do you come here? And he told me three things. The first was, I started a program called Diaconia, which is a lay training program that's now in all, for me, then it was a seminary of the streets. And so our, our leaders, we invested in our leaders. And so they had diaconia-trained leaders who were leading knots of Bible study with kids. And he said, that's my son over there. And here, you guys take the Bible seriously. Well, he was talking about sola scriptura in his own way. Mm-hmm. And he said, and you know what? And he pointed at his shabby shoes. He said, you know, I'm trying to live one day at a time. But here I'm welcome. I wouldn't be welcome in some of those other churches. Well, he was talking about sola gratia. He was talking mm-hmm. about grace alone. Mm-hmm. And then he said, you know, I, I was Baptist and I've been Pentecostal. And he said, some, and the, music, the, the liturgy there was pretty wild, I thought. He said, it can be a little tame here. But he said, there are some things I've come to expect and look forward to. And he mentioned the creed, the Lord's Prayer. Well, he was talking the solus Christus. In his own way, he was more Lutheran than many people mm-hmm. I knew. So when it came time for prayer, I just muttered to the pastor, you know, I'm standing in the need of prayer. And, and so he invited me, but the whole congregation, because they do it every Sunday before the Eucharist, the prayer deacons come out. We came, we knelt. Michael Thomas stood over me, and there was someone next to him holding a towel, so I knew I was going to be on my knees a while. And uh, the jazz band started playing, and... and uh, Bert Bellamy uh, written a song called Coney Island Jesus because that's where he found the Lord. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, one living one day at a time for six years, and that guy prayed over me. He cried. He went off in tongues, and it was just. But it all was Lutheran. It flowed then mm-hmm. into the Eucharist. You know, the lament of the community and. You know, as bread and wine is lifted up, so was my cancer and everything. And they do it every Sunday, so it wasn't. And, you know, 
that's Lutheran too. Mm-hmm. And and uh, and I think it's that's how I was translating what you were trying to say. It felt expansive. Mm-hmm. Every Sunday before the, the Eucharist, their evangelism team hit the streets to invite people. And so they'd bring people to church with them. If there was a fire in the neighborhood, they'd take a collection, they'd deliver it to the door. Or if someone was shot, they would they would they would go to the door, they'd bring money for the funeral. Mm-hmm. They this was a church that was embedded in its community. It was loved, and it was growing like kudzu. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, it outgrew that storefront. What I kept hearing throughout this episode was a call to courage and a call to community. Stephen talked at length about listening to people and listening to what they want and need and learning more about who they are. And in this way, we are able to build relationships and ultimately community. I think it's always easy to say and know that we need to do this. And still, it takes a great amount of courage. It can be hard to take that first step out of our own comfort zone and our own well-established relationships to learn more about someone we don't know well or know at all. But when we do so, we're able to learn more about our communities, learn more about one another, and learn more about our collective community and culture. Stephen said, in the way of Jesus, small can be beautiful. If it's making a difference in the lives of people, and if it's really showing up in their neighborhood. It takes courage to show up, But all that is needed may be a small thing, a small thing that builds trust, that shows love and care, and shows that we're truly listening. So what is a small thing that you can do with great courage? Who can you reach out to today? What can you learn about your community, and how can you begin to show up for the neighborhood? Thanks for listening to this episode of the Sandbox Cooperative Podcast, and a special thanks to Stephen Bowman for taking time to connect with us. If you want to stay up to date with all things going on in the Sandbox, follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, or sign up for our mailing list at sandboxcooperative.com. You can also rate and review us on iTunes and join us in the conversation. And as always, be sure to share this podcast with someone who might like it, because there's always more room in the Sandbox. Until next time. We'll see ya. Bye. Please watch your step as you exit the Sandbox.